0: at 919-860-9783. That's
1: 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc., investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. Hello, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug Linda and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 30 years. Hello there, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters with Doug and Linda has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all of your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 20 years. And again, with me as usual tonight is my wife Linda who works with me in our firm, Lewis Financial Management.
2: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. Doug and I are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing investment in financial advice since 1983.
1: For over 20 years, we've been answering your questions on the WPTF phone lines. They are your questions and our answers.
2: So sit back and enjoy, or if you're free, call us tonight on the open lines. We'll take your calls anytime during the next hour. You're free to call in and ask any financial question about your own personal financial planning. Call us at 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF.
1: Well, financial planning is everyone's business, and still for most folks, money matters are just a big puzzle. Folks have questions about planning for retirement, planning for a child's college education. They don't know the difference between financial planning and money management. They want to know a lot these days. They want to know what's a mutual fund, what's a limited partnership, what's a REIT, what's a will, what's a living will, and yes, it really can confuse you, but you're not alone. Because in a world crowded with new investments, changing tax laws, rapidly evolving insurance products, and volatile economic cycles, more and more people are looking for clear direction in their financial lives. And yet, unfortunately, the busier and the more successful they are, the less time they have to sort out their financial affairs. And people are asking, is there any solution?
2: Well, yes, Doug, there certainly is a solution. Out of this increasingly complicated financial environment has come a new breed of professionals that are trying to solve people's money puzzles. And that's the Certified Financial Planner.
1: It's the certified financial planner who offers something that people don't get from the traditional stockbroker, money manager, accountant, insurance agent, or bank trust officer. And that's a way to consolidate all aspects of people's financial affairs into one financial plan. It's the certified financial planner who knows how to pull together all six areas of a client's financial life.
2: Doug, I think for many people, the first area of financial planning is cash flow planning with questions about their emergency fund, their mortgage, their credit cards, and reducing their debt.
1: Well, yes, Linda. And yet for many people, the second area of financial planning is retirement planning. Those who are working want to know how to compute what they'll need to live on during retirement and how much they should be saving for retirement. They want to know what investments they should choose from the choices in their company's 401k plan. Others are retiring and have received a lump sum payout option from their company's retirement plan and they want to know, should they take it and if so, how should they invest it?
2: Well, Doug, the third area of financial planning that must be dealt with is estate planning. For most people, over their working years, their estate has grown. How can they reduce their estate taxes? And they wonder, are their simple wills sufficient, or maybe they should be considering the complicated world of
1: trusts. If that's the third area, Linda, the fourth area of financial planning cannot be overlooked. This is tax planning. People are interested in both tax reduction strategies and tax reduction investments, home mortgage interest, charitable giving. Tax shelters, tax free bonds, questions about capital gains taxes, estate taxes, gift taxes, and how to sell real estate tax free using trusts. What a confusion.
2: Well, Doug, we can't forget the fifth area of financial planning, which is insurance planning. How much life insurance does a family really need? Do they have too little insurance or maybe too much insurance? Should they have whole life, term,
1: or universal? Should they have long term nursing care coverage? You're right, Lynn. And of course, the sixth and most important area of financial planning is investment planning. Here, the questions never stop. What's the best way to diversify my investments? Is now a safe time to invest in stocks? What about bonds? What kind of stock mutual funds, bond mutual funds, equipment leasing partnerships, REITs, CDs, gold, annuities...
2: So, Doug, it seems that at last it's time for people to understand that a certified financial planner is really the only one who can tie together all six parts of their financial puzzle. And to you out there listening, if you've got a question on your mind about cash flow planning, retirement planning, estate planning tax planning insurance or investments call us now on the open lines and we'll answer your financial planning questions those numbers to call are 860-9783 that's 860-WPTF and if you just want to sit back and listen to the callers through the years welcome to the show
1: let's take steve's call steve this is doug lewis certified financial planner how can i help you how
0: much could you leave your spouse without having estate taxes, or can you leave everything to him without estate taxes?
1: Well, how much would you like to leave her?
0: Counting life insurance, close to $2 million.
1: And that's a good point. You said counting life insurance. Is the life insurance needed for her survival,
0: well, for her no, support? Probably not, but it's there to cover estate taxes, and it's also there as a form
1: of retirement. Well, you've thrown in even a third curveball. First story is that you could, if you choose, leave her... A hundred million dollars and have no estate taxes. Okay, but the problem is, unless she can quickly remarry, it will hit when she dies. Uh, well, I knew that. So, so, so you you never want to leave it all to her. That's the whole thing. Uh huh. But you have to do it in such a way that you create a taxable estate at the first death. Now, the taxable estate you create is by leaving something to someone other than your wife. I understand. So if you leave it to a trust, it's now somebody other than your wife. That's right. Now, this trust then can leave all of its income to her. That's right. So she can receive the income from it. And when you start putting some more bells and whistles on this thing, you can even make her the trustee of it so she can control it. I see. You can even give her what we call five by five powers, which is the right to go in and get 5% of the principal if she needs to, to help out with her normal lifestyle. I see. And she wants the same over in her estate. Now, with regard to the insurance, you said you want to have insurance for retirement planning. That's a no-no. Never get insurance to build up cash value to support you during retirement. No, it's just a supplement. Yeah, you don't want to do that. That's a bad move. Well, I figured
0: what I was going to do was going to take it and just turn it over and put it in a trust.
1: Yeah, that, that what you've done is you're creating a disaster for yourself. What you want to do is you want to go ahead and... Have an irrevocable life insurance trust established now that will be the owner and the beneficiary of all your insurance. That's right. That way, nothing will come back into her estate and then be hit when she dies.
0: Can you do that with a current policy?
1: Yes. However, to do it, you have to wait three years before you die. I see. In other words, if you die within a three-year period, then it will come back into your estate. I see. As if you didn't do it. If
0: I did it now at 42, which I, you know, hopefully I won't die soon. If I do it now, then I would
1: be okay. As Right. You will have moved all of your insurance out of the taxable estate. The trust has to be the owner and the trust has to be the beneficiary of the insurance. And well, you need to do an insurance needs analysis to find out, to make sure that she will have enough without this insurance because the insurance can't be used for her. Well,
0: that's what I wanted to do. That was kind of my question I was asking. You. That's that was my goal, right. was to move this policy to a a trust, et
1: cetera, and i not be the owner of the policy. Right. Your insurance agent should have advised you in doing that. As a matter of fact, the best kind of policy to get for estate taxes is one we call a second-to-die policy, Uh which is one policy that pays because you don't know who's going to die last, you or she. That's
2: right. Have you ever worked with a financial planner, Steve?
0: No, I've worked with a... A
1: broker, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, you what you want to do yeah. is you want to find a certified financial planner who charges a fee for their knowledge, not selling you a product. I understand. Uh, and then uh, go it that way because a second to die policy is the one that's the best one and also the cheapest one for paying estate taxes and also keeps you from having to buy two policies because you don't know who's going to die last. That's right.
2: Now, okay. uh, are you self employed or yes. okay? So, yeah, it's time.
0: <laughs> oh, well, I've got, I mean, I'm Money purchase pension plan, profit sharing plan,
2: right? But your estate planning, you, you still need. Yeah,
0: well, that's right. That's my, That's the reason I called.
1: Yes, sir. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that you probably can do. Uh, that you probably haven't have not been uh, exposed to, but I would advise you to get a financial plan produced, uh, and then see how everything works out. Because if you if you if you have the potential at at age 41 to leave a large estate, you want to go ahead and maximize the investment side. And all of the benefits you've got here, the tax side, and tie it to the estate side. I see.
0: Well, I knew that using life insurance for retirement was not a good thing, but I just happened to have it, and so
1: one of those deals. Yeah, what you might want to do is, if you cancel that policy, take out your cash value, buy a second-to-die policy inside an irrevocable life insurance trust. Mm-hmm. You could use that cash value to reduce your premium on the on the on the policy for estate tax.
2: If I can provide any more information for you, you can call the office. At eight seven two seven thousand, that's USA 7000, we're here in Raleigh. All right. I'll be happy to either send you some information or see what we can do to answer any more questions that you might have.
1: Well, thank you very much. All thank right, you thanks for, going, for calling, Steve. Steve. Well, Lynn, what's new in the area of retirement planning?
2: Well, Doug, um, you know, there are some common misconceptions about IRAs, aren't there?
1: There really are, Linda. A lot of people don't understand things about IRAs, and uh, since IRAs often represent a significant portion of a retiree's net worth, many planning opportunities are available to the informed if such uh, answers can be got. Now, the first misconception that people have, it seems to me, is that minimum distribution decisions must be made when the IRA owner reaches 70 and a half years old, but actually That's not true. The required distribution date, the beginning date, is not age 70 and a half, Lynn. It's actually April 1 of the calendar year after you turn 70 and a half.
2: Now, what are the required minimum distributions based on?
1: Well, they're going to be based on either the joint life expectancy of yourself, if it's your IRA, and your spouse or whoever the designated beneficiary is going to be. Uh, As of the time of that beginning date, if there is no designated beneficiary, uh, then the distribution is going to be based on a single life as if it was just you.
2: Now, there is a second misconception that some folks have about IRAs as individual retirement accounts is that you cannot change. Some people think that you cannot change the beneficiary of an IRA after the required beginning date. Is that true? Uh,
1: Yeah, you're right, Lynn. That is a misconception. The beneficiary of an IRA actually can be changed any time you want while the IRA owner is alive. It's the payout method that gets locked in, not the beneficiary. And that payout method gets locked in at the required beginning date. Now, the key to remember here is that if the beneficiary is changed after the required beginning date, then the minimum required distributions may need to be increased, but they're never allowed to be decreased.
2: Now, this is a misconception here. Um, If the IRA owner dies after his or her required beginning date with a spouse named as beneficiary, then the spouse is locked into the minimum distribution schedule of the IRA owner. Is that is that a misconception?
1: Yeah, that's another mistake that people hold. They think that once you've set up your uh, minimum distribution and it's locked in and uh, you're married, that if one spouse dies, that lock-in minimum payment has to be continued to the next, to their surviving spouse. And that's not so. At the IRA owner's death, the spouse can then treat the IRA as if it were his or her own IRA and do what we call a spousal rollover and just roll the money over into her IRA. And then she has the choice of naming a new beneficiary and calculating new minimum distributions just as if she was the account owner herself in the beginning, so uh, a lot of people are confused about what has to happen with those minimum distributions on IRAs at death.
2: You can call the office here in Raleigh. That number is 919-USA-7000. That's 919 I'll be happy to send you some information. A fourth misconception is uh, that naming a charity or a charitable remainder trust as partial beneficiary of an IRA may be a wise planning decision. Is that true?
1: Well... If you do, it may be a terrible planning mistake to really do something like that because when calculating the minimum distributions from an IRA that has multiple beneficiaries, uh, the IRS looks for you to look at the worst case beneficiary for determining life expectancy. And since a charity is not a person, that's going to be the worst case because the charity doesn't have a life expectancy and so it's going to bump back to single life. Now, uh, there's a solution. There's actually a couple of solutions to this problem. One solution is you can go ahead and break your IRA into a couple of IRAs and then let one IRA, if you want part of it to go to a charity, let part of it go that way. Another way is to use a charitable remainder trust. And I like this one a lot, And I do this a number of times in my, in, 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 uh, w- with my clients, where we set up a charitable remainder trust as the beneficiary of the IRA. You know, if you get a million-dollar IRA... And you die and you have a spouse, no problem. Uh, she can actually just receive it and roll it over into her own. And there's no problem, no taxes. But at her death now, that IRA is going to, let's assume they've got a $5 million estate. That IRA, when she leaves it to her children, it's going to lose probably uh, $700,000 in taxes out of that million. And that million is going to probably be about 300000 is all that's going to end up in the kid's hands. Because there's not only estate taxes to pay, both federal and North Carolina, there's income taxes that have never been paid, federal and North Carolina. So the way to solve this dilemma is, yes, to use a charitable beneficiary, but use a charitable trust beneficiary. So now, at her death, it goes to the charitable trust, and the charitable trust then pays income to the children for either their lives or for a period of years, maybe 20 years or something like that, and there's no taxes paid whatsoever.
2: Now, this is definitely a sophisticated strategy, isn't it?
1: Oh, yeah. This is. You don't try this one on your own. That's like brain surgery. You, you don't do this one on your own. But it works in a wonderful way if you can run the numbers and if you see what's happening there.
2: Okay, Doug. There, uh, now, a fifth misconception is that IRAs invested in mutual funds and CDs are an excellent liquid asset for paying estate taxes. Is that a misconception?
1: That's another one of those big no, 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 wrong, wrong answer that people have about IRAs. IRAs that are left intact at death can continue to grow and grow for decades. In fact, with proper planning, a large IRA can provide for the owner and the spouse during their lives and then later provide for the IRA's owner's children during their lifetimes. And if you would like any
2: other information, you can call the office here in Raleigh. That number is nine one nine USA seven thousand. That's nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. I'll be happy to send you some information. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug Lewis. If you have a question that you'd like to address to Doug about your money matter, call us now on WPTF phone lines at eight six zero nine seven eight three locally. That's eight six zero WPTF. And if you're out of town, it's toll free at one eight hundred. Six six Let's pause here for a caller.
1: Cheryl, this is Doug Lewis. How can I help you?
3: Uh, my son wants me to invest in a subchapter S corporation. And I don't invest anything I can't afford to lose. So right. I, I'm not really concerned about that. But I'm concerned about the fact that he wants me to encourage some of my friends to do so. And I don't understand the uh, ins and outs of what a subchapter S corporation means.
1: Well, that's like saying your son would like to get married, but not telling you, you know, uh, who he's marrying. The the, the, the the Subchapter S Corporation is simply a container. W- what is the investment?
3: Uh, the investment is in, in publishing. He, he has something really going in Arizona, and he needs to expand.
1: Oh, so he wants you to help him expand his business? Yes. Oh, well, he's not talking about you investing in a Subchapter S. He's asking you to loan him some money.
3: Uh, well... Yeah. I'm, I'm going to get stock for it.
1: Yeah, well, that, you know, and a nickel used to buy you a cup of coffee. I won't even buy you a cup of coffee today. So the stock is basically going to be worthless. All you're doing is loaning him money in exchange for the fact that if his business happens to make a profit, then down the road you can get a piece of the profits. But if I will tell you with an absolute, absolute assurance, say no. Just say no. Right, Linda?
2: Yeah, I would agree. It's too risky and...
1: Never with your kids, with your family. Never invest with the family.
3: Okay, even if I can afford to lose it?
1: No, no. I mean, you create bad, bad, uh, I, I I, would say no. I, I tell all of my clients, do not invest. If you want to give them a gift, give them a gift. If you can afford it. How old are you?
3: <laughs> 60.
1: You're 60 years old. Yeah. What's your income?
3: Uh, oh, roughly 200000 a year.
1: All right, you're making two hundred thousand a year, so you can go ahead and lose some money. Yes. I presume you're not your living expenses aren't running two hundred thousand oh, no, a year, no, are they? No. no. Okay. Uh, what does your investment portfolio look like?
3: I've got a really, I've, I've got a, a very good one. I've got everything from uh, mutual funds and stocks and bonds, and got some T bills, and I've, I've got really good spread on that.
1: Okay, and how much do you have invested?
3: Probably about three hundred fifty thousand.
1: All right, so you've got $350,000 investment. Where is your income coming from?
3: Uh, a lot of it's coming from uh, rental property uh-huh. and, uh, so, and a business that
1: I own. $350,000 is only at best going to be able to produce about 25000 a year income for you. So I'd be real concerned if that's all your investment portfolio is. If you're bringing in 200000 a year, what are you doing with all your money? Well, it's not going into your investment portfolio.
3: No, it's, I've, I've been putting it back in business.
1: And how much does your son want you to, learn to invest in his subchapter? Oh, only about $5,000. Okay. Well, first of all, give him the $5,000 and tell him that you don't want any, any of his stock. All right? That's the best thing to do. It sounds like you're a prime candidate for financial planning. If you tell me your investment portfolio is only $350,000, and I know that can't support a person who's bringing in an income of 200000 because that's only 25000 a year income, and if you tell me you don't know where all the money is going on your in- income side, 200000 if you're plowing all of that back in, what's the structure of your business? Is it a proprietorship or a corporation?
3: It's proprietorship.
1: That's even worse. That means that every bit of your income is producing a tax liability for you, and yet you're not accumulating. You see what I'm saying? hmm So it looks to me like you need some real financial advice from a certified financial planner to tie together the three components of your world. It's wonderful that you've got an income of 200000 but you should be investing a fixed amount of that income, a significant amount because you're 60 years old, and that's a scary age. So if I were you, the, the business side of it needs to be tied together with the investment side. You mm-hmm. should be able to see how much you will have accumulated five years from now when you're 65, how much of that income coming in from your business will be over there in your investment portfolio. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And the goal should be that your investment portfolio could support you at your lifestyle, need to analyze your lifestyle very carefully.
2: If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919 That's 919-USA-7000.
1: Okay. I don't want to let her off the air without answering her question of definition. What is a subchapter S? It's nothing more than a corporation that does not pay taxes. It's a flow-through entity. It just lets you go ahead and have a non-taxable entity that looks and acts like a partnership or even a sole proprietorship like your business. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. It's just a non-taxable corporation as opposed to a regular corporation. Then it's got some other features and benefits to it, but for a startup, it's usually, uh, that's all that, I mean, that's all you need to know about it because it doesn't have any real bearing on your end. What it has to do is over on his end, and if you get some stock in it, you know that's that's not your goal your goal is to help him out right yeah so it and,
3: sounds like i should not be encouraging my friends to do
1: this either uh, absolutely not you don't no. want to lose your friends no don't, don't don't do that that's called venture capital what it really is it's not subchapter s it's venture capital and that's a real sad situation when because of personal reasons friends and relatives contribute to a venture capital deal which is another term for startup business mhm uh no, don't do that. That's, that's, a, that's a real no-no. You can create a, a, a quagmire of problems down the road which are not worth it to you or your son.
2: And write down your questions, because whoever you used as your advisor should be able to answer those questions. Okay. And we thank you so much for calling, Cheryl. Take care. You're You're listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis, and we'll take your call on the open lines at 860-9783, and our long-distance toll-free number is 1-800-662-7979. Well, what's new, Doug, in the area of
1: tax planning? This is the mutual fund swap strategy. Everybody needs to get out a pen and paper and get ready for this strategy and I'll tell you when to start writing. First, let's assume that you have a mutual fund and let's assume that you bought it for $25,000 and now it's down to only $15,000 on paper. In other words, you look it up in the newspaper and you notice your fund is only worth $15,000. This means on paper, at least, you've lost $10,000, right? But you still like the fund. You still believe in the manager, and you want to keep the fund for the long haul. You own 2,000 shares at $7.50 a share value today, which is why it's worth $15,000 today. But you originally paid $12.50 a share for your 2,000 shares, which is how you spent $25,000. Well, you're obviously thinking, I'll keep the fund, and I hope it'll go back up to $12.50 a share one day. But I'm keeping it for the long haul anyway. Well, here's a way that you can get tax refund checks for $3,500 and still keep your fund. You can sell your fund and switch it over to the money market fund. Then, 31 days later, switch it back to your high-yield bond fund. It will cost you nothing, no commissions. You'll get a Christmas bonus of $3,500 from the IRS and from North Carolina. Sound powerful? It is. It is. It's a wonderful strategy, assuming a few things. All right, let's go a little more in-depth. Assuming one year from now, your fund is back up to 12 dollars 5 a share, then one of three things is going to happen to your fund in the next 31 days. This 31-day figure, by the way, is a crucial number. You cannot do this strategy in less than 31 days. You must, you can sell it out. Tomorrow morning, you can pick up the phone, call your mutual fund, if they allow telephone switches, and switch out. But you cannot go back in in less than 31 days and achieve the benefits of this, of this strategy. So on, in the next 31 days, one of three things is going to happen. Let's, let's call them case A, case B, and case C, okay? Case A is it's flat. The share price of your fund 31 days from now will still be $7.50, and we'll say a year from now it will be up to where you expected to be at $12.50. That would be case A flat. Case B would be the up case. In the next 31 days, the share price will go up. Let's say maybe it goes up to $8, and then one year from now, it'll be up to your $12.50 expectation. And case C would be the down scenario. In the next 31 days, let's say your share price has gone down, maybe to $7, and then one year from now, be back up to $12.50. Okay, now take out your pens and write this down. Case A, 31 days later, Share price, still $7.50. You buy back into the fund. You had 2,000 shares worth $15,000 before the switch. You have 2,000 shares after the switch worth $15,000. But when you sold, by switching out of the fund, you created a taxable event, and you generated a $10,000 loss, and assuming that you're in a 28% tax bracket, The Internal Revenue Service in April will send you a $2,800 tax refund, and North Carolina will send you another $700. That's a total of $3,500. That's case A.
2: Our number in Raleigh is eight seven two seven thousand. That's USA 7000.
1: Case B. When you make the switch out of the fund, let's say it's tomorrow morning, you still get the same $3,500 IRS in North Carolina Christmas present. 31 days later... You switch back in, let's say it's now $8 a share, so your investment is still worth $15,000. The only difference is that now you have 1,875 shares, not 2,000 shares, but your investment is still worth the same $15,000 as before you made the switch and you got $3,500 in cash from tax refund checks. That's case B. Case C, when you make the switch out of the fund, you get the same $3,500 IRS in North Carolina Christmas presents. 31 days later, you switch back in, and now let's say at $7 a share, your investment is still worth $15,000. The only difference is you now own 2,143 shares. So let's summarize. If you had not made the switch, you would still own 2,000 shares worth $15,000 and have no tax refund checks. In case A, you got $3,500 from tax checks back to you and your investment is still worth $15,000. Beautiful. In case B, you got $3,500 refund checks and your investment is still worth $15,000. Beautiful. In case C, you got $3,500 refund checks and your investment is still worth $15,000. Beautiful. You can't lose. The only way that you don't get those checks is by doing nothing, by not making the switch. So what's the difference? Where's the catch? The difference is in the number of shares. In case A, you made $3,500 in cash in your refunds, and you end up with the same number of shares. In case B, when the share price went up, you made $3,500 in refunds, and your investment was worth the same, but you lost 125 shares. In case C, you made $3,500 in refunds, your investment was worth the same number of dollars, but you ended up with 143 more shares. So in all three cases, after making the switch, you got $3,500 in cash, and your investment is still worth $15,000, but you may have the same number or more or less shares. We said that a year from now, the price may be $12.50. That's your expectation, okay? And it doesn't matter whether you think it'll be a year from now or two years or three or four because you're holding it for the long term, all right? And that's where you bought it, and you figure it'll come back up at least to where you bought it. Okay, that's where the difference will show up, though, because in case A, your investment will be worth $25,000 at that time. In case B, your investment will be worth $23,438. And in case C, your investment will be worth $26,786. You win in all three cases. And isn't it amazing that the best case, the very best that could happen to you is for your fund to drop? to to go down in the next 31 days. That's case C. One more thing. This is a beautiful tax strategy for you, but only if three conditions prevail. If your fund is down, this is the first condition, your fund should be down from where you bought it. In other words, you've lost money on paper. Number two, you should be in a mutual fund family with a money market fund. That's assuming that you originally paid a load. If you didn't pay a load, it doesn't matter. And number three, You plan on keeping the fund over the long term anyway. You see, this is an absolutely commission-free strategy for all front-end loaded mutual funds in families. If you do this with stocks, I should caution you. If you do it with stocks, it won't work because you pay a commission going out of the stock and going back in. But call me with your questions and let's see how you can save some tax dollars. Uncle Sam is waiting to send you a check.
2: To any of our listeners, if you have a question or if you would like to receive our introductory packet of information, I'll be happy to send it to you. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That is USA 7000. If you have some financial planning concerns or questions about your situation, get a notebook and start jotting down some of those questions and work with a financial planner. Thank you for joining us on Money Matters with Doug Lewis. And, Doug, it looks like we've got a caller.
1: How can I help you, Will? This is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. Um, hi, Doug. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. I have some property that I inherited that I'm going to sell
0: and has a fairly large capital gain on it.
1: When did you inherit the property, Will? A couple years ago. All right. What's the value of the property?
0: It's, it's selling for
1: thirty-three dollars $33,000? i not exactly sure what the basis is, but it's around ten to $15,000. And the basis, uh, how did you get the basis? Well, that was the cost. That's what you Who Who left it to you?
0: Well, actually, it was... My mother inherited it, and she's been giving it to us
1: gradually. Um, no, wait a minute. I'm confused. You said you inherited it.
0: Well, it ultimately, it was my
1: grandmother's, um, but it's come through my mother to me. This is very crucial, the question I'm asking you. Did you inherit the property, or did you receive it by gift? I received it by gift. So you didn't inherit it? Right. Okay. That's very unfortunate, because if you had inherited it, there'd be no capital gains. Did you know that? No, I didn't. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, Sometimes it is inherited property, but it's really not. It's not inherited. Unfortunately, it's not. I was hoping you were going to tell me that uh, that the ten thousand was what your the basis that your mom who owned it had left it to you in her will, and when she died, that you thought that her basis was yours, and that is not the case. Right. If you are gifted property, then the cat then the basis is the same basis as the person who owned it that gives it to you. That basis carries over to you. Right. On the other hand, I if you... I thinking
0: it went that way when you inherited it as well.
1: Worst thing you can do, because there is a wonderful situation called a step-up in basis. For example, let's assume that the property you inherited, that no, that you received by gift, let's say you that, that it was worth 33500 the day that you got it. If it was worth 33500 the day you got it, and the basis of the person that left it to you, your mom, let's say, was 10000 then your basis would be 33500 Right. The basis of the person who inherits property is the value on the day they inherit it, which means you turn around and sell it the next day, and there's zero capital gains. But if she gives it to you and you turn around and sell it, then you pay tax on 23500 $23, Well, given the option, I'll keep my mother. <laughs> Well no the uh, be, the best right. thing the saying. best thing is to make sure that nobody gives you anything if you think you're going to sell it. See that's the whole that's the whole strategy never let somebody give away to you what you're going to hold anyway until that person passes away because you're really shooting yourself in the foot. See what I'm saying? Right. You miss all the step up in basis. Okay. Okay. Well, any so more much. yeah, by the way, any more questions, give me a call at the office and I'll go over your specific numbers if you want if you want. Well, my number at the office during the week is 872-7000, 872-7000, And you can speak to Linda. Okay. Thanks. This is just the second time I've heard your program, but I enjoy it. Well good. Thank you for listening, Will. Okay, thanks. All right. Well, Doug, what's new in
2: the world of estate planning?
1: Quite frankly, Linda. Many people think only wealthy individuals need an estate plan. In fact, it may be more important for a person with a modest estate to conserve the maximum value of their assets. An estate is a coordinated strategy for conserving assets you've accumulated during your lifetime and distributing them according to your wishes at the time of your death. Because planning for death is not a pleasant subject, many people avoid developing a coordinated strategy one that uses different tools or devices, such as wills, trusts, contracts, or property titles to distribute property. Real estate, for example, may be distributed by proper titling. Retirement plans and life insurance often pass according to beneficiary designations. An estate plan can also take into consideration special circumstances, such as care for aged and infirmed parents, a disabled child, or gifts to a favored charity. The costs to settle your estate generally fall into three categories. Number one, administration and probate costs, including attorney's fees. Number two, federal estate taxes. And number three, state inheritance taxes. In most cases, these costs can be reduced or eliminated by careful planning. Review your plan periodically to reflect changes in your personal situation and changes in the law, property left outright or in a qualified trust to a surviving spouse is not subject to federal estate taxation under the unlimited marital deduction rule. That's right. You could leave $10 million to your spouse estate tax-free. But that could be the worst thing to do. For when your spouse dies, there would be over $5 million in taxes to pay. Tax laws are complicated and change often. The time to get answers isn't in the distant future. The time to get an estate plan together is now. Find a certified financial planner who can help you with your estate, or someone else will after your death. Seek competent financial advice, and if you have any financial questions, call me at 872 That's 872-7000. And remember, your financial future is at stake.
2: Thank you for joining us on Money Matters with Doug Lewis. And Doug, it looks like we've got a caller.
1: All right, let's take Dorothy's call. Dorothy, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
0: I asked, what was the difference between a short-term note issued by a bank, buying that, or buying a bond?
1: In a sense, they're the same because they're IOUs. Yeah. Are uh, they different kinds of bonds? Are you talking about a treasury bond? Probably municipal, put it that way. All right, well, a municipal bond is a bond that is an IOU guaranteed by a municipality, like uh, a state or a highway department or a school district or a hospital, and right, so on. Right, the, Those are municipal bonds. They they pay tax-free interest. Right. Uh, and a short-term note, they come in different forms depending on who, who issues them. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, and I'll see if I can tell you what I think is suitable. How old are you? Sixty-eight. You're sixty-eight. You're married a single.
0: Single.
1: Single. And what is your income right now, Dorothy? Maybe $400,000. is the income coming from? Investments. Now, if your investment income is $400,000, I... Oh, no, I, I mean, that's investment, not income. Oh, okay. I was going to say, that would have been, you know, about an $8 million investment portfolio. Right, right. Okay. All right. Well, if you've got a $400,000 portfolio, uh, then the question is, is that your total source of income yourself, plus your Social Security? Right. All right. So, do you know how much income that's giving you? About... Uh, about 25? Yeah. About yeah. 25,000. What what does it look like right now? What is your income? What is, what does is the portfolio look like? Do you know what you're invested in? It's very diversified. It's in municipals and it's in
0: some stock. Not Not a lot, but some growth stock. Uh huh. Municipals and
1: uh, I can't think of what else. A lot. Well, personally, I think that you should have an asset allocation model applied to your portfolio. That's the first thing. In other words, you should have a system that is controlling your portfolio in terms of how it's diversified. The second thing, I don't think that you should be in individual stocks or individual municipal bonds. Do you know what your living expenses are running you? Uh, not exactly. Do you spend
2: all of the 25000
1: Very Pretty much. Yeah. Well, if she's using all of her investment income, Linda, then she's really depriving herself of any compounding effect on her estate. And what she should do, I would think, what I would prefer to see is have her in, if she wanted municipal bonds, I'd rather she be in municipal bond mutual funds, uh, because then as the money is moved, there are no commission charges. Afterwards, if she goes from one to the other, of course, if if she sells one municipal bond or if one matures, she has to pay commissions again. Right. Uh, Also, the individual stocks, trying to play the stocks, uh, who makes the decisions of when to buy and sell a stock?
0: Well...
2: Is your portfolio under management or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what I figured. You've got someone doing asset management, which you probably, I would agree with Doug that you need an asset allocation model.
1: You could be getting more income and more growth probably than what you're doing now. And as far as short-term bonds, uh, I mean short-term Short term notes, notes or bonds, I don't think either of those is what I would do for a person with with your income and with your and with your age. Oh, age. Okay.
2: Okay, and if you have any other questions, uh, feel free to call us at the office at 919-872-7000. Well, Doug, mutual funds are one of the most practical and easy ways for people to invest for long-term goals such as college or retirement. And I know that there are some common questions about mutual funds that people have.
1: Common questions like what, Lynn?
2: Well, the basic one is, what is a mutual fund?
1: Well, you know, I never thought of people asking that question, but it's a good question, obviously. What is a mutual fund? A mutual fund, Linda, is a regulated company that pools together money from many individual investors through the sale of shares and in turn buys stocks or bonds on behalf of the shareholders. Now, the price of those shares is called the net asset value. And that will increase or decrease depending on the current value of the different stocks or bonds in the mutual fund. Shareholders may receive income from their mutual fund, or they may profit or lose when they sell their shares, just as they would by investing individually in stocks.
2: Well, Doug, why should a person invest in a mutual fund? What
1: are the advantages? All right. Well, I guess the first advantage everybody uh, should be realizing is it offers diversification, Linda. It's the old story of don't put all your eggs in any one basket because a single mutual fund might hold 100 or 200 stocks and bonds. So you could buy $10,000 of a mutual fund and have 100 stocks instead of putting $10,000 into one stock. Now, the second advantage, I guess, is the one of management, professional management. You've got someone managing those stocks and bonds.
2: Right. And, and what are some of the other advantages?
1: Well, I guess some of the other advantages, Linda, are they're cheap to get into. Also, you can reinvest. Not a lot of stocks let you reinvest the dividends, but you can do automatic reinvesting of your dividends, which lets you compound your return. And, of course, you can always get out. They're liquid. They're liquid investments. So I guess these are the main advantages of a mutual fund.
2: People also wonder, Doug, are mutual funds insured, like CDs or savings accounts?
1: That's something you always need to remind clients is no, they're not insured. Mutual funds are not federally insured, even if they happen to be sold through banks. The investment return is not guaranteed, and you can lose money if you sell your shares for less than you paid for them. But mutual funds don't make loans like banks do, and they are closely regulated. So the risk of a mutual fund actually going broke is extremely small. If
2: this sounds familiar to your situation... Call the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. One other common question that people uh, have, Doug, is are all mutual funds similar?
1: Well, that's a good question also, Linda. No, they're not similar. Mutual funds have different investment objectives and different levels of risk. For example, some try to generate lots of current income, while others shoot for making big profits on fast-growing stocks. Funds have become very, very specialized these days. Some invest only in tax-free municipal bonds and big company stocks for other funds and corporate bonds for other funds, U.S. government securities, small cap stocks, gold, silver, internationals, foreign countries, all kinds, even special sectors of the economy like health care funds and technology funds. Yet, even still, there are funds that try to embrace lots of different categories. So, no, all mutual funds are not similar.
2: Now, how many different funds should a person own? I mean, how does a person determine how many funds they should have?
1: There are probably as many answers to that question as there are stockbrokers and financial planners, Linda. But my own advice is that, number one, it depends on your own investment goals, the amount of money you've got to invest, the time that you have to watch your funds. But there should be... An asset allocation model on your portfolio, and it should encompass different things. I think everybody should have a growth and income fund. Uh, They should have a domestic bond fund, an international stock fund, possibly an international bond fund. But overall, you should have an asset allocation model superimposed upon your portfolio with a uniform unit size.
2: And I guess more important than that is how does one pick a mutual fund? I mean, how does a person go about picking, choosing which one they should have?
1: Well, I'm prejudiced, but I think with the help of a certified financial planner, you need to also be sure of the fund's objectives, the degree of risk, make sure they match your investment goals and your comfort level. You want to compare the fund's total return on each invested dollar with similar type funds, preferably over a 5- or 10-year period, Uh, Of course, past performance is never a guarantee of the future, but it's a guide. You want to look at the fund's fees and their expenses, both the upfront sales charges and also the ongoing management fees and how they compare with similar funds. And you also want to, most importantly, know, has the fund management been consistent with its stated objectives?
2: And another common question that people uh, wonder about mutual funds is, should a person invest in just one fund family?
1: Well, I personally think a fund family uh, is better than buying individual funds, and as long as the fund family offers you all that you need for the size of your portfolio and the unit size you're using, that's fine. Then you may, if not, have to pick a second family or maybe a third family, but I usually try and stay within one family as my base when designing a portfolio, Linda.
2: What's the difference between current yield and the total return?
1: It's an important thing to know the difference between the total return and the current yield because these terms are advertised, and most people see little numbers out there. They say, well, you know, such and such a mutual fund has done 18%, 14% for this fund, and so forth. When you hear those numbers, Linda, what, is that, what do you think of right away? Current yield? Yeah, but that's not current yield at all. See? That confuses people. That is total return. Would it shock you to know that that current yield is only 1%? The difference in current yield and total return is a crucial thing to understand, and the current yield is really the dividend income coming off it. Never think that you're reading current yield when you hear these and read these numbers. That's the growth portion of the portfolio. Very, very different.
2: If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919 872 That's
1: 919-USA-7000. Let's take our next caller.
2: Hi, Bill. Yeah. This is Linda Lewis. How can we help you today?
0: Well, Linda, I'll tell you, i got a question on whether I'm, I'm saving enough. Yes, sir. i uh, 55. Yes, sir. And I'd like to retire at 58. Okay. Now, the pension will be about $2,000 a month. All right. And what we have now is income of about a hundred thousand. And I've got about five hundred thousand in tax deferred accounts.
2: Let's see. So you're you're okay, so you've got five hundred thousand in tax deferred accounts. Your current income is a hundred thousand. Is that you combined with your wife? Yes. All right. And will she continue to work? No. What are your expenses?
0: Other than what we're saving, we spend the rest of it. So we're saving about twenty thousand a year.
2: So you're spending about eighty thousand,
0: and then of course the tax
2: taxes.
1: So yeah. how much you spend last year in taxes?
0: That one I can't answer.
1: Well, if we <laughs> assume that you spent uh, maybe uh, thirty thousand in taxes last year, okay, and you're saving twenty thousand, then that says that you're spending fifty thousand. Okay. If you're spending fifty thousand, then what does he want to do, Linda? He wants to find out whether he'll have fifty thousand. In three years, and
2: you're saying that in retirement you'll get two thousand a month. month. That's twenty four. That's twenty four thousand. But do you have, Bill, anything outside of the tax deferred investments? I mean, do you have like any other personal funds? Just
0: uh, emergency money.
2: So you don't have like your own mutual funds in your own name no. or CDs or anything like
1: that. No. But that's okay. He'll be 58 years old. That's
2: yeah, right. no, I, you'll be able uh-huh. to access that so money. So let's see
1: what his shortfall is, Linda. He needs to ha- he needs to get $50,000 before tax, which means he probably needs to get about about 75,000. He needs to get 50,000 after tax to live. So he needs to end up with maybe about $75,000 coming in from everything, right? And he's got 24 of that already from the pension. So he's gonna be shy about fifty one thousand dollars, it's gotta come from somewhere and that's gonna come from has to come from his investments or his retirement plan. Now you said your retirement plan is worth how much about five hundred? Yes. All right, total five hundred. Well obviously if you were to try and do it today you couldn't make it. That's right. Because five hundred thousand will not give fifty one thousand a year income. The question is if we can get it growing between now and the next three years, will it grow big enough to where then it'll throw off fifty one thousand a year income? And uh, I'm not at my office. I'm down at the station during the week. I'm at the office. If you were at my office, I would be able to work some numbers for you a little better. That number at the office, by the way, is nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. But if we go ahead and think that we can grow that five hundred thousand to where it's worth about seven hundred, or about seven hundred thousand, if we got it up to seven fifty, I would say you're all right. Uh, because 750 could comfortably give you 51,000 a year, okay, and 51,000 a year plus your regular 24,000 a year would give you 75,000 a year, and then your 75,000 a year, subtracting your taxes, would leave you the 50,000 a year that we think you need. Now we've got a lot of iffy sort of assumptions here, since we're doing this real quick on the back of a pad of paper. At sixty-two, the Social Security would kick in. Oh right. yeah,
2: so we have right. other so we, sources of income.
1: Yeah, well, no, we got a gap. We got a gap period there because we right. and we also got a penalty period for the first year and a half. We'd have to pay a ten percent penalty. It would be an interesting equation. By the way, the money right now—what kind of retirement plans it in?
0: It's tax deferred. It's a combination of four hundred
1: one k and IRA. Uh, yeah. If you um, if the IRA portion we could work with now. The four hundred one k portion we could only work with at retirement. But if I had the whole thing spread out in front of me, I could go ahead and make some recommendations about how to try and make sure that you would get it. And then we would try and grow it up to age 58, and a half, 58 when you retire. Then we have two choices. We can do, uh, there's a special section in the tax code that will let me get that money out for you and not pay the 10% tax penalty. Is that only for the IRA or both? That's for both. Okay. But uh, we have to do it with a, uh, a five year freeze. Uh, however, that would work. We could do that, or we could just go ahead and look at the living expenses at that time and see how close we are, and we may not have to go ahead and do it. We may be able to go ahead and do it on a variable. Uh, you have no money of your own invested anywhere? No. Okay. Yeah, it would be a very interesting equation. I think we could work with it and we could do it. Uh, worst case is we have to pay a penalty for a year. Uh, that would be your choice, whether to pay the penalty for the year and a half to get to where age 59, you don't have to go ahead, and you can then adjust according to your needs. And then two, three more years later, we could do the Social Security. Yeah. Yeah, listen, jot down my office number. It's 872 eight seven two seven thousand. Okay. That's 919 872 And some people remember that as just USA 7000. And if you call my office during the week, Linda can check my schedule. Generally, uh, we're booked a little ahead of time. But whatever uh, meeting time I've got, she'll set up an appointment and tell you how we charge and so on. Okay. Okay.
2: All right. Thanks so much for calling, Bill. Thank you. Take care.
1: Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week, and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake.